Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on TWIP, iFi goes raw, guest host Scott Bourne stirs things up a bit, and an interview with Adrian Zimkowski of Tave Studio Software. All that and much more coming up next on episode number 94 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. Today we've got a, a pretty interesting show lined up for you. We've got uh, Mr. Ron Brinkman on the line. Steve Simon is also here. And special guest, Scott Bourne. Hey, Scott. Hey there. Well, welcome back, <laughs> hey, Scott. Hey, hey, hey. That it sort of, feels, sort of feels like a familiar old closet to be back. Yeah, like an old, <laughs> an old leather jacket that you haven't worn since the 80s and you pull it out and it still fits. I wasn't sure my microphone would still fit into the stream, but it does. <laughs> Awesome. Fred, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's great to hear your voice, Scott. You know, last week I missed the show, and the week before we did it on video. So I, I had my hair done and everything, and, <laughs> and we're not doing it on video today. <laughs> we're not doing it on video because we typically do video from the the Twip Cottage or the Twitch. I'm sorry, ooh, the Twit Cottage. Twit with a T Cottage up in uh, over. up in Petaluma. You do not want to make Leo angry. <laughs> Twit. No. T- this week in technology, of which this week in photography is no, not as large as. Um, but we typically do it from there, uh, but for other reasons, we weren't able to get into that space today. So we're going audio, from which we can do any. We can do it from anywhere on the planet. So Viewers, we're just going to have to imagine how good I look today, I'm telling you. <laughs> you can post a photo of yourself on, right. on, the, on twiplog.com, and people will love it. All right, let's get Sean on the road. We're... <laughs> <laughs> There's the curmudgeon, right? Wait, wait a minute. We've got two curmudgeons on the show. <laughs> How can That's that good. be? We're going to keep things moving. I know we're we're totally balanced. We've got we got uh, myself and Steve, and then the two curmudgeons. So we're good to go. So just a quick note that this podcast is brought to you by the folks at Audible.com. They're the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. And if you'd like a free audiobook of your choice, just head over to AudiblePodcast.com/slash/twip. And we're also brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality blog or high-quality website or blog. If you like a free trial and get 10% off of your new account, head over to Squarespace.com slash TWIP and input the code TWIP. And with that, let's jump into the news. Here's some interesting news today, though. This first item that we're going to talk about, I don't know how pertinent it is to many of our audience. Oh, Cosina has announced it. Has announced the Voigtlander Nokington or Nocton fifty millimeter one dot one lens f one dot one lens. Now you just didn't want to do the. You just didn't want to do this piece because you couldn't pronounce Cosina Voigtlander or Nocton. Probably. Well, there, there's an umlaut in there, and I have this rule about not pronouncing words that have umlauts. <laughs> so, 
So, uh, well, I didn't want to do this news piece. You're right. We talked about it before we clicked record on this show, uh, specifically because I'm not sure how much of the TWIP audience actually will be able to benefit from knowing about this. <laughs> so maybe I'm just being selfish that, you know, I think most of the people that are listening are on Canon or Nikon, but I don't know. What well, do you guys you know, we, we, we've gotten We've gotten complaints from people saying, every, you guys talk like the whole world is on uh, Canon or Nikon. So I think we that's because they should cover it. That's because 94% of the whole world is on Canon or Nikon. Well, I'm saying. There those, is that. Those, those complaints came mostly from the Voigtlander crowd. <laughs> the but Voigtlander marketing said, department. Well, my said, name is Bill Voigtlander. I'd like to register a complaint. This is an F1.1 lens, and that is kind of a rarity. And I, I, that's and very it fast. It fits the Leica M mount, so Leica yep. rangefinder shooters are going to be excited. But what gets my attention about this is, um, you know, the Leica version, I think they make a 1.0, what is it, a Noctilux or something like that? Maybe Scott has one, perhaps. He's I got guess. three or four of them in the closet. Maybe three or four. I, I, don't, I don't do the rangefinder thing. Thank you. Okay, gotcha. Oh, it's actually the, the Noctilux is a 0.95. But this is an extremely fast lens. It's a lot lighter than the Leica version, and it's only $1,300. And I say only because... Jeez. Leica version is in the thousands of dollars. So someone's going to, maybe two people out there within our listening audience are going to be excited about this. And so I'm here we've got some. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was yeah. just going to say the depth of field on a uh, on a lens like that is about an inch. Yeah. Well, that's open. definitely that's crazy. So you could but either you sure, could buy yeah, this I'm lens, sure that... you could buy this lens, or you could uh, run out and get a new iMac or something, right? <laughs> well, yeah. But that's true of a lot of lenses, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. I don't know. So do, do I mean, either of you guys have some of our? Do, do no, either of you guys have a Leica? Sure some of our users have. No, I don't have one, but uh. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our users do. And, and there are adapters too, so you can. I know that. Um, I think Panasonic actually makes official adapters to the M mount, um, so that you can put it on some of the Panasonic SLRs. So you know, if you're looking for a fast lens, there, it's kind of a strange pairing, I suppose. But I don't know. I just like the technology too of a fast 1.1 lens. That's uh, you know reasonable price point. Reasonable. Yeah. All right. On on to other news. Uh, Steve, I, I noticed there's something in here that you you wanted to talk about the Olympus EP1. Well, I I put this on and we'll link to it. But this looks really. Speaking of rangefinders, this looks really kind of sweet. Um, it, I don't know if it's officially been announced yet, but it's a uh, it's a rangefinder camera. Rumor has it 13 megapixel, 6400. Uh, ISO, 11-point autofocus, and it's got that retro Olympus pen look to it. It looks really nice. I don't know. Have you guys taken a look? No, I haven't. I'm looking right now, though. Hmm. It's, we touched on this last week, right? The rumors were out, the pen, which I guess is a classic sort of a, a Olympus camera. I mean, I think this is, you know, there's that micro four-thirds standard that's been proposed that, mm. so it's a small sensor. It's, you know, half of a, half of a regular 35-millimeter sensor, and it always seemed kind of strange to me because it was sort of trying to compete in the regular SLR space. It, it made for smaller cameras, but it wasn't, they weren't radically smaller than, you know, what you would get with, you know, sort of the crop sensor Nikons or the, or the Canons. And this is the first one that sort of really gets me interested because they're really taking advantage of that small sensor to make a very small camera. But, it, you know, when you say small sensor, that's relative to 35 millimeter compared to your average point and shoot the sensor is is ginormous you know it's mm -hmm. still quite a bit larger than what you would get in any of these little point and shoots so it's finally sort of hitting a mid-range both in terms of sensor size and camera size where it may become you know it, it, it hits that same range that the Leica was in where 
you know, real high-end, uh, well-known photographers would shoot some of these rangefinder cameras because they were smaller and more compact and, mm-hmm. you know, easier to carry around. And I think this finally brings something out that's in the digital realm that's in that place that's still a reasonable cost item. So I, it's starting to get interesting to me. Oh, okay, so then looking at, I'm looking at this camera now. It looks beautiful. It looks like a piece of art that you put on a pedestal or something in your house. But comparing this, so help me understand, Ron, comparing this one to, say, you know, one of the, the like the G9, the G10, or something on the Nikon side, why would a photographer want to use this as a backup or as an, uh, you know, a secondary camera to their SLR when they can get something much slimmer and much more feature-rich in mainstream cameras? I, I don't know if it's right to characterize something like that as more feature-rich. It's, uh, this has got interchangeable lenses, mm-hmm. so you can put on you know, high-quality glass, so that's a big difference. And again, that, that sensor is still a lot bigger. The Micro Four Thirds sensor is a lot bigger than what you're going to see in a G9 or G10. Yeah. This looks like a photographer's camera, similar to the Leica rangefinder system. I mean, it's small, it's easy to carry around, quiet, unobtrusive, and I think you can do some serious photography with this when you want to keep a low profile. It's, I think um, um, it's actually got a lot more flexibility than a G9 would yeah. in terms of you know, the still image anyway. I don't know if it does video, but uh, it looks pretty sweet. Now, would you use this on a job, Steve? Well, if I was going into a situation that um, was maybe a little bit tense or difficult, um, yes, I think this would be a camera, obviously, if I learned how to use it properly and was confident with it, but it seems like the quality is going to be pretty good with it. Um, It seems like a a, a nice compromise, almost like an autofocus Leica rangefinder system. Now, Scott Bourne, do you use a point-and-shoot at any point in your, your travels? Oh, I, I carry my LX3 everywhere I go. And, you know, every once in a while I see something that, well, you know, the best camera you, you own is the one you've got with you when you need to use it. Yeah. Every once in a while I see something that looks really cool and I'll use the LX3. And I've I've gotten some photos published from it. it you know, the high-quality JPEGs in good light look as good as any RAW file from any other camera. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice, nice little camera. I'm, I'm getting the GH1, the Panasonic GH1. Mm-hmm. I have mine on order. And that's almost a point and shoot. It's so small. But I'm getting that mostly for video. But I don't do the rangefinder thing. And the really small little point and shoots for me, you know, they're a convenience thing. Once you had a D3, it's tough to go back. So speaking of the best camera is the one that you have with you. Uh, as we all know, last week Apple announced the the new iPhone 3GS, which has some pretty good, or what appears to be some pretty good uh, photographer features built into it. Scott, I know you you were for a couple years ago you were marinating an iPhone. What do you <laughs> what do you what do you think of this new iPhone from a photographer's I'm ex- perspective? I'm excited about it. I did not upgrade to the 3G when it came out. I didn't think it was enough of a leap, and I was fine with the original iPhone, but I've had it two years now, which is about the longest I've owned anything. So (laughs) I just decided it was time to upgrade. And I really like the the new camera. It's three megapixels. It's the the touch focus thing is incredible. That's a very convenient little deal. You see something in the picture, you want to focus on that. You simply touch the screen. I'll bet you money. Just mark my words, record this, note it, write down the date. 
we will see that technology cross over into expensive DSLRs. Oh, yeah. You will you will see that, especially with the advent of you know live view shooting. You can just touch on the screen where you want the thing to focus. That's brilliant. And, uh, you know, the video thing is nice. That's why I went ahead and ordered the 32 gig cam uh, memory for my uh, iPhone because I wanted to be able to shoot some quick video. I mean, I think it's going to hurt people that make these little quick video cameras and stuff like that because you'll be able to do it on the iPhone. I, we don't know yet exactly what the quality is going to be. We'll find out. I've got uh, my shipping notice from Apple today. Excellent. So uh, yeah. I will have one here in a few days, and we'll go out and test the camera and the video. And we'll be posting that uh, over at the other site. And what's that other site, Scott? <laughs> Go ahead. Photofocus.com. Got it. Hey, Ron Brinkman, you did a, a couple of months ago, uh, you did a mock-up on your blog uh, of what the ideal sort of camera would be. It's kind of a merge of a, a, a point-and-shoot and an iPhone. How close did this new iPhone come to your rendering? Uh, well, it's definitely an improvement in terms of the optics, but it's still a you know very small sensor, tiny camera. And what I'm looking for is something that really lets you couple, uh, you know, decent, high quality optics with a fully programmable interface. So, you know, but having said that, this is I'm in the same position that Scott was in, where I didn't bother upgrading to the 3G. It didn't seem like enough for me, but this is clearly uh, enough of a delta from the the original iPhone to to upgrade. Uh, you know, the camera alone would have been enough for me because. Now that there's something in there, it, it, it's the same thing. The camera that you have with you takes the best pictures. And, yeah. and I just I just want to point out, Fred, that my first Canon DSLR, which was oddly enough, you know, called the D30, I believe. Um, they switched their naming nomenclature later. Um, that was a 3.3 megapixel camera. Mm. Yeah. And and I have hundreds of photos published in books and magazines and newspapers from that camera. But uh, with better optics, like Ron would say, though. Right? Yeah. You know, well, sure. we don't know. Here's the thing. We don't, yeah. we don't know whether the optics are better or not because there's some rumors that Apple has put a pretty nice piece of glass on this thing. So if that's true, maybe the optics will be you know, somewhat comparable. Now, obviously, a very small sensor, and it's not going to compare with even a, a, you know, an inexpensive DSLR. But I, I just, I'm very encouraged by this. And there are a lot of people, I mean, we all know Chase Jarvis loves to take iPhone photos. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people doing cool things in the apps. My goodness, have you guys seen all the crazy blow me? App? They blow yeah. me away. The, the fact that I can use uh, Photogene, I think it is, and put vignetting and and build a layered document with tiffin photo effects and that kind of stuff it's just insane you know on my phone and, and, and that was <laughs> yeah and that was really my point of that blog is that you know so much of this i mean we you know we, we, for years we've been dealing with this sort of in the computer graphics world and you know, the term computational photography where you just sort of acknowledge that the shot's not anywhere near done until it's sort of gone through some kind of digital processing you know, having that built into your phone and the ability to do all sorts of tricky things with it, I really think that's where the, the, the you know, revolution is happening. Yeah. Further, further to that conversation, a friend of mine recently went out with uh, his girlfriend, and he, he brought his 5D Mark II. She brought a pinhole camera made out of an old Quaker Oats kind of tin or whatever. And eventually they, they processed all their images. And, you know, he liked her images a lot more than he liked his, which were technically beautiful. But, you know, you see you see some stuff and some some atmosphere and a feeling that is evoked from from sort of a little sensor that, you know, it, it can be nice. Yeah. Sometimes less is more. In fact, a lot of times less is more because it, it forces you to be more creative. Right. 
you guys can say right to that and agree with me. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Happy accent, right? I was actually trying to think of a clean joke to tell there, but couldn't. <laughs> All right. Also in the news, uh, it looks like Think Tank has come out with a new line of bags that I think Steve Simon is lusting for. Steve, you want you want to talk oh, about that bag that bag line a little? About my about my bag problem. Yeah, I mean I, I do have. I can't have a bag problem. No, I mean, it, it, it was inevitable that uh, with all the multimedia that's going on, particularly in the uh, sort of visual journalism world, that uh, someone would be the first to the line with a line of, of multimedia bags, if you will, that are um, there to hold your camera equipment as well as your headphones and your little field recorder and so on. So it's, uh, I think there'll be, um, you know, some, you want to be lean and mean and be able to move around as much as you can so that the equipment doesn't get away, get in the, in the way when you're in the field. So anything, um, that promotes that I think will be of interest to photographers. So certainly, um, are you guys collecting any field sound for any of the stuff that you're doing? I have for years. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I have I've never done that. I guess I need to start so Scott, doing do you, that. I mean, do you do you tend to just collect snippets with your uh, your Lumix while you're shooting full no, full size photos? You know, Ron, this is sort of like the way I do everything else. I've <laughs> got a very nice little Sony handheld digital field recorder with a match stereo microphone, the PCMD1. It was about two grand when I bought it a couple years ago. I think they're down to eighteen hundred now. It's a it's a broadcast quality field recorder. And it's very compact. It's it's made of titanium, so it's virtually indestructible. And I go to Bosque, and I'll be out photographing in the morning, and I'll just set the thing there and record for a half hour and just get the whole ambiance. And then I'll use that audio sometimes either in slideshows or in video presentations. To be honest with you, I've recorded way more of it than I've used, and sometimes I think it's stupid, but it's just a habit I've gotten into. I think it's a good idea, Scott, because really you have the raw materials. You're there anyway. All you have to do is flick it on, and then down the line, I'm sure you're going to, you know, hit a situation where that is going to come in really handy. And and later down the line too, when you start to do more with the images that you have, you're going to have that as an element that you can use um, in showing your work. So I think it's a good idea. No, well, thank you. Steve I saw this. I saw this same bag. Brian over at Think Tank sent me a link to the video, which I just posted on my Twitter account. And I have to say, the video is so good that even if I wasn't interested in this, I'd want to buy one. <laughs> nice. It's true. The, the video actually may be a little nicer than the bag. I don't know. But it was very well done. So, Steve, speaking of uh, you know, uh, capturing audio and, and that sort of thing, are, on your D3, do you find yourself using the audio comment feature a lot? Or, or are you capturing some other way when you do your audio? Yeah, I, I would use. A, I have a little Ederol recorder that is also a very high quality recorder, and I'll I'll use it in a variety of situations, particularly when I'm traveling. But I, I do like that little audio notes feature on the D3, um, and I use that in a pinch when you know I don't have a pen or paper handy, or if I just want to you know make a note of a brilliant idea that I get every seven years. I've got that <laughs> there that I could press on it, and it download it as an audio file. So, I mean, I, I, I do use it from time to time, but not the, the audio quality is not at all uh, close to what you get with serious field recording. I tell you, I would use that feature on the camera a lot more if uh, Aperture or Lightroom would su support you know that. So when I saw my thumbnail in my library, I could click on a play button and play the 
audio comments that came along with that particular that's, shot. That's brilliant, Fred. I really agree with you. I think, you know, I think that's where we need these applications to start going. And if the developers of these applications are smart, they're paying attention to this convergence of video, audio, and still photography. Um, you know, I, I've heard the term used visual artist very often by people that I know who are professionals who used to call themselves professional photographers. What do you guys think of that? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I like photographer. We were throwing around the term multimediographer a while a few shows ago. But, yeah, it's a little I don't more think, unwieldy. Yeah. I don't think it's it's sort of like the term podcasting. There was a debate when Leo started talking about netcasting versus podcasting. You can pick any term you want, but I think the word photographer is no longer accurate. In some cases, I mean, that's, that's interesting it, you bring that up, Scott, because I was remember, uh, I think it was Friday, Facebook released the whole go, come get your your personalized domain name for Facebook, Facebook dot com slash whatever. And uh, I went in there and then I started building Facebook pages for the various things that I'm involved in. And, you know, how you have to categorize them and pick what kind of Facebook page you're building. I was looking for a photographer in there and there was no photographer but there was visual artist. So maybe yeah. maybe you're on to something. Maybe. Well, it's actually, I mean, I didn't coin the phrase. Um, our good friend Ron came up with that phrase, I think. <laughs> That's the first person I, uh, not Ron Brinkman, sorry. Oh, um, okay. Ron, the video guy. Um, he came up yeah, with I it. Yeah, don't, I don't, you know, it's, we've, we've had in, in, the, in the visual effects world for years and years and years, we've had the term digital artist. Uh, and it yeah. was always kind of the catch-all phrase for somebody that um, wasn't, you know, specifically an animator or a compositor or, you know, a 3D model or something like that. And somebody that was sort of the general artist that you could toss at in a variety of different situations. And, you know, it's always that kind of trade-off between sounding too generic uh, and not being accurate enough, but well, you know that, that years ago we went with the term "born media group" for my company because we produced all kinds of media. Even though I'm primarily a photographer, we always thought it was best to allow that for growth. And now I'm glad I did it. If you've been lucky enough to see Bill Frakes do his Aperture demonstration for Apple, then you'll know that. I mean, he's one of the leading shooters at Sports Illustrated. He's been there a long time, and he told us very plainly. He said, "Now." Uh, I shoot for a multimedia presentation, period. We do video and audio on every single assignment, no questions asked. He's got to do video. He's got to do audio. Stills won't get it done for SI because they get tons of traffic on the website. And, you know, he said, hey, I might get lucky and get two or three pages in the magazine, but I can get a bunch in video. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll just redefine the term photographer to include all this other media, just the way you often hear musicians talk about a new record, which is sort of an ode to the days gone by, really. Yeah, well, we're all, at the, in the end, just visual communicators, so, you know. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, what makes my head hurt with all this, having come from, uh, worked on the Aperture team, for instance, and generally from doing a lot of software, is, you know, trying to come up with a a piece of software that's capable of, you know, really doing a good job of managing video plus, you know, photography plus audio, uh, it becomes really unwieldy. You know, I like software that's streamlined and well-focused, and I just can't quite wrap my head around something that would be a really good experience for handling all those different types of media. So I'm sure somebody will do it, but, boy, it's, it's not a trivial thing to implement. Get busy, Ron. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pull out pull out that graph paper engineer. <laughs> so also in the news, uh, this is a, a pretty interesting, and I I would say this is kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, an Australian university is warning its faculty and students about some potential adverse health effects of using Apple's Notebook and other products with high gloss screens, saying prolonged use could lead to injury if precautionary measures aren't adopted. So in other words... Oh, oh, my glossy screen just hurt me. <laughs> wait, wait, yeah, mine too. Let me fix that. Okay, I just adjusted it. It's better now. <laughs> uh, we, we have to take a little bit of responsibility here. I mean, basically they're saying because of the angle that you might end up in because of reflections from a glossy screen, after a period of time, you're going to like hurt yourself. And you know, I suppose on. that's true about anything. That's like do saying the Apple that, haters know, do they know no bounds? They come up with <laughs> two lines of attack on Apple. I mean, I it's like I there's know. a committee where they get together and go, "How can we attack evil uh, Apple today?" I know that's like saying, "Hey, driving Stop. through the McDonald's drive-through may cause fatness." You know, come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> In my case, it turned out to be true. <laughs> with a picture I mean, of Scott Board, the lady that I mean, spilled that hot long coffee that on her. You know, I yeah. spilled hot coffee on her and then sues. I mean, this is a similar kind of thing. I mean, you have to take a bit of responsibility and sort of, you know, tilt that screen so that you're not in an awkward position. But, I mean, I think this was a, leg a real thing that, that was put out by the university. But, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they have more important things that they could be looking at. Uh, yeah, let's find stupid. out how much Windows stock they own is what I want to know. Well, I mean, if yeah. the university finds it necessary to, to raise this particular issue delight it makes me question that faculty at the, <laughs> at the university and their curriculum you know if they're, see, if they're spending on time on this yeah on today's agenda we've got the elections in iran we've got darfur we've got aids we've got starvation and then there's those dastardly glossy screens oh my god we gotta we gotta change the world here this is anyway i i had to i had to read that one twice because it uh made me laugh See when you you you, you know the, people are lucky you're hosting the show now, Fred. <laughs> Why? Because you would have went off on them. When Aaron used to give me that stuff, it never get read. <laughs> I just I just I pretended it wasn't on the the sheet. But that was just, good. We needed to talk about that. We needed to talk. We need to bring the absurd and the useful to the well, to what, the attention of why, the Twip audience. That's why you're I think we spent more than enough time on it now. <laughs> Moving right along from the absurd on to the useful, Canon is planning to build a new factory in Japan in a little town called Nagasaki, which is, uh, and this is according to Reuters. Uh, this is this is interesting, and you know the little footnote I put in my mind in here is last week we we were talking about how Nikon is posting losses and Canon is preparing to break ground in Japan on a new factory. So this is a little scary. Uh, what I do you guys think? Kind of, well, I think that's kind of mischaracter. I mean, you, you, those aren't apple and oranges comparisons. I I suspect that, uh, you know, every, everything's kind of turning around a little bit. I haven't compared Canon's uh, financial statements versus Nikon's, but I don't. I wouldn't want to characterize it as, you know, well, Canon's two, building new two. factories while Nikon's going out of business. I didn't yeah, say that. I'm just saying it's making me, you know, wonder. I haven't seen yeah, any Canon, Nikon. Canon, Canon, Nikon is breaking new ground on, you know, yeah, plans. No, but Can, Canon posted losses as well. I mean, everybody's hurting, but yeah. this is like one of those glimmers of hope that, uh, you know, yeah. the politicians will talk about. I mean, it's great news to hear be that they're planning on building a factory specifically for for DSLRs. I mean, that yeah. that that says that uh, the well, future Canon looks good. Dwarfs Nikon. I mean, in terms of size, that's something people yeah, don't exactly. know. I mean, Canon is a much, much, much larger company. Way more employees. Way more product lines. You know, they could their Canon 
camera business could tank and it wouldn't show up as anything other than a blip. They got all kinds of other lines of business. Nikon, it seems a little more, you know, critical because they're a much smaller company. But I can tell you, neither one of them are going away. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a major company go away, but it isn't going to be one of them. Yeah. You know, Nikon is specifically, I mean, cameras are a big part of their business. And, and of course, you know, from that perspective, um, you know, with the general photography business being what it is, I think if Canon's building a new factory, that's, that's good news for Nikon because, you know, good that's news for primarily. Everybody. It is. It is. Yeah. So, Scott, does this in any way make you feel like switching back to Canon? No, I mean it's really interesting you bring that up. This is it's almost the one year anniversary of my switch and my first ever death threat over camera choice. <laughs> what? And, <laughs> are you are you going to be celebrating? Yeah, uh, you know here's the thing. I I'd switch tomorrow to Canon, Panasonic, Olympus, anything but Sony. Sorry, uh, I'd switch to pretty much anything if somebody could show me that it was better for me. I mean I don't buy cameras because they're better. Period. I buy them because they're better for me. And uh, if Canon were to come out with a camera that surpasses the D3 and was reliable, I'd have, I'd switch back. I I mean I'm in the business of using these things to make good pictures, and and uh, I'm in a position to get the best product, so that's what I would do. But I have no regrets about switching back. I can tell you it's been a very interesting experience from the perspective of someone who shot Canon professionally for 17 years to switch to Nikon and to see the differences. I mean, no, nothing's perfect. You know, there's the occasional lens that Nikon has, like the two to four hundred, all the Canon shooters drool over. But then, as a Nikon shooter, you know, I I wish I could get something like the four hundred diffracted optics lens, or you know, I wish the seventy to two hundred two eight didn't vignette on the Nikon. Like, you know, it, it's perfect on the Canon. I mean, there's always going to be something. Yeah. You know. So I've had way more repairs with the Nikon than I did with Canon, I can tell you that. So overall, in your opinion, since this is your one-year anniversary from switching or for switching, what uh, your overall, are you happy that you made the switch? Or? Oh, absolutely. The D3 is a remarkable camera. I mean, it's, I, I, I have five of them now. <laughs> I mean, it just changed my life. I mean, it's, if you do what I do, you know, if you do wildlife photography and you need to do fast-moving objects, I don't believe there's a camera made that can rival it because if there was, I'd own it. Yeah. <laughs> it it's, it's a great camera. Uh, that, In my opinion, I'm just setting this up, in my opinion, Canon's autofocus is far inferior to the Nikon, which is a big deal when you shoot moving objects. Ooh, that's, tw that's a Twitter comment right there. I need to put that out <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, but more so than that, I think the creative lighting system for Nikon is really very good. I think Canon's is almost as good. I think there's a slight edge to, to Nikon there. I think Canon has the edge in reliability. Um, I, I think they're both great companies, and I think there are good cameras being made by both of them. I just feel like, uh, you know, for me personally, the style of shooting I do, I've really enjoyed the D3. Some of the lenses I've purchased, like the 2 to 400, are very nice. Uh, the 16-millimeter fisheye is really nice. The one, the 100, I guess it's 105-millimeter uh, 2.8 VR macro lens is really fun. Um, and I really am enjoying the SB900 flashes. I've got three oh, of those yeah. now. It's a great system, but you know, I wouldn't look. I wouldn't worry about you know either way. I'd switch back in a heartbeat if Canon announces a better camera tomorrow. But for now, I'm very happy. I, I'm not happy about you know, like I say, the repairs and and some of the service issues. I've had to wait a very long time to get my products serviced, and that was not an experience I ever had back when I was with Canon. Uh, fortunately, I 
thanks to help I got from my friend Steve Simon, uh, I finally got approved for Nikon Professional Services, so that should solve that problem. And now that I'm an NPS member, I expect that I won't have to wait to get stuff repaired. But I'm glad I did it. I now, mean, Steve Simon, what's the deal with you and your Nikon D3X? Is that on the horizon, or are you uh, have you given up on it? Uh, well, no, I haven't given up. <laughs> I have a dream. <laughs> but uh, actually, you know, I... I Recently, up in this uh, workshop I did up in Oregon, I borrowed a D3X, and uh, having been familiar with the D3, I mean, really, it's it's the same camera, only you know twice the megapixels, and it's a little bit slower. Its uh, low lens sensitivity is not quite as good, but if you're doing anything that warrants uh, the use of the mega megapixels, if you're making very large uh, uh, prints, then you know it 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 it's pretty seamless going from a D3 to D3X. Now eight thousand dollars is a lot of money for a body, and not mm. if you can afford it, but uh, or or not in, not only afford it, but really needs it. Scott has said repeatedly that uh, you know he doesn't need um, a D3X, and he's happy with his D3s. But it's it there's no question it's a beautiful camera if you have the need for for blowing it up really really big. Cool. <laughs> All right, one one quick nod to uh, our sponsor, or one of our sponsors, Audible. Uh, we're brought to you by them, audible.com. They're the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. They've got over 50,000 titles to choose from or be downloaded and played back from anywhere. And uh, have you guys been listening to uh, any Audible titles recently? Anybody on the show? Of course. What, what's the la- What's the latest one that you've listened to? Uh, what did I just finish? I, I think the most recent one I finished was actually a, a novel by Terry Pratchett. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him or not. He he did the whole series of Discworld books and uh, just a very funny, very imaginative writer. I mean, really tons and tons of books. But um, he, he just did a uh, change in pace, a book called Nation. Uh, and it's, you know, this, this is all fairly light reading kind of stuff, but um, it's more of a, almost a historical novel in the sense that it's set in, you know, 1800s. Uh, it's about a, a South Pacific island that's sort of uh, consumed by a, a tidal wave and the survivors of that and uh, a Victorian era ship that crashes on that island at the same time. So it's just fun, kind of light stuff, but still with a little bit of poignancy to it. You know, I, it's... It's one of the uh, most of my most of my audible reading is uh, I need something when I hop on the bike and go for a long bike ride or something, something to make exercise tolerable, and yeah. um, it's perfect for that kind of thing where you just want to you just kind of want to not think about the fact that you aren't getting enough oxygen into your body. <laughs> yeah, I think the the latest book that I've listened to uh, was one called Younger Next Year. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of that. Uh, it was recommended to me by uh, my good friend uh, Sal Segoyan over at Apple. And it's a book that um, basically goes through uh, biology of or the the innermost makings of your body and how when you exercise, it essentially makes you younger and, and releases these chemicals in your body that make you that rebuild things and yada, 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 all this stuff. So it uh, it's a really interesting book from both a biology perspective about what's actually happening when you exhaust yourself and how you were designed or your physiology was designed to exist back in the caveman times and not much has changed, but our environment has changed, therefore we get sedentary, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's, I think the book is written for people in their 50s and beyond, but the, uh, the techniques and the recommendations they give in there are really excellent. It's kind of changed my perspective on you know, sitting on the couch eating McDonald's and not doing anything. So it's called Younger Next Year. I definitely recommend that. 
And if you are interested in uh, getting a free audiobook of your choice, just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip and snag yours. And then uh, one more thing in the news today, iFi, the, uh, our friends that became famous for creating that SD card with a Wi-Fi router built into it, have released uh, a version of their card that can transfer raw files and allow, allow ad hoc connections. And I've been waiting for this. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, iFi in general has not penetrated the pro market or you know the the photojournalist or wedding shooter market or people that are actually making money with photographies because people are switching over to raw now and before if i could only transmit the jpegs now we can do raw files now what do you guys think about that are you uh, are you planning on jumping on board and and transmitting raw files using an ifi well it, for me the problem is that it's uh you know, it's, it's not compact flash, so it doesn't work with my my big camera. It would only yeah. work with my little Linux. Uh, and you know, it, so it, it's a you're paying a premium. How much is that that thing? It's uh, 150 bucks. Yeah, exactly. So you know, not a cheap solution. I can certainly see the value. I mean, the the very cool thing about this now is that it it can um, not just the raw file stuff, which are useless to me on my Panasonic, since Aperture still doesn't support that. But um, it's like dig, dig, but I'm not, dig. But I'm not bitter about it or anything. But but no, the cool thing is that it it can now uh, attach to an ad hoc Wi-Fi network, and what that means is that you can basically, even if you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you've got your laptop with you, you can set up your laptop as the ad hoc Wi-Fi network, and so you can just do direct communication, at least the way I'm reading it, from yeah. your camera to your laptop, and not have to have some kind of a base station in the middle of that. Which I think that is actually kind of a game changer on it. I wonder if it's going to be fast enough to allow kind of faux tethered connections so in your house you could shoot and just have them show up on your laptop there and have it be fast enough to keep up with you as you as you're shooting well and it, you know it does big question of uh can you set up your you know are you, are you gonna have enough support on your iphone that you could actually have that tethered scenario where you can set your camera up on a tripod and just use your iphone as the uh trigger and the the, the display right right Another feature that they uh, that they put into this new version is called Selective Transfer, which is pretty interesting. And I've been using a, an iFi card in my G9 for a while, especially when I'm shooting on JPEG mode. Um, and the, the problem is I'll shoot a bunch of photos, and then I'll get home and turn the camera on, and I'm reviewing the photos, and I forget that they're uploading to Flickr. And I've got them set to upload and flag themselves as private so I can go through later and delete and make the ones public that I want. But then I end up going through like 50, 60 pictures that have been uploaded. Well, they've, they've, upload, or they've created a new feature called Selective Transfer, which only limits or which only uploads this, the photos that you've marked using the camera's protect feature, which is cool. So as long as I don't make it back to my Wi-Fi network and I mark the ones, you know, and I protect the ones I want, those will be the only ones that get transmitted, which I think is a pretty necessary feature. Uh, oh, Scott, have you have you played with iFi at all, or you've been pretty silent there? I would assume you know, just, it's just not my thing. You know, I, I, I the only SD cards I have, like Ron, are in my LX3, and it's you know, it it's it's interesting, you know, but it's kind of gimmicky, and I'm actually a little worried about what it could portend for professional shooters that work in an editorial situation. Um, so, in what way? Well, you know. If you if you've ever worked for a newspaper or a magazine doing spot news coverage, you know about this person they call the photo editor. And lately, the photo editors are all about half my age. 
and have about 10 minutes of experience doing what they're doing. And they all think they're geniuses because now anyone who's 20 thinks that because of the Internet, they're smarter than everyone they know. And they want to pick your shots before you get to even see them. So what they're going to start doing, I'm not going to mention the newspaper, but there's a large metropolitan newspaper that's going to have a photo editor sitting at a, a at, in the press box at sporting events. And they're going to take stuff off of the i5 via router into that person's computer. They're going to pick the pictures to you know select and delete, and then they're going to give feedback. This is the scary part. And the first part's not a big deal because that's what photo editors always do. But then they're going to tell the person who's got the camera over Wi-Fi wireless headsets or whatever, oh, yeah, I don't like that angle. You know, shoot it this way or go over here, do that. Mm, right. And pretty soon the photographer is just pretty much like an automaton just standing there going, <laughs> which way would you like me to shoot, sir? You know, yeah, that was, that was the I biggest use? sort of science fiction nightmare that photographers would have. But you know what? It's, it's definitely becoming a reality. The technology's there. Wow. All right, uh, another quick nod to our other sponsor, Squarespace.com. Uh, they're a quick way to build, host, and manage your website. Uh, they've got an easy UI to create and manage your site. They're optimized for beginners and experts, and they've got a bunch of hundreds even of design templates <coughs> to choose from and choose the design that fits your need. And again, we've got another special. If you want a free trial, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP. No credit card needed. Just try it out. Build your site. If you decide to buy it, get 10% off when you enter the offer code TWIP. Now, as far as the photo assignment in the current poll, uh, we're in week three of the current assignment, which is retro. And we've got a new poll out there uh, on TWIPlog.com if you want to participate. And the question this week is, is photography a solo or social activity for you? Uh, referring to, do you like to go out and shoot alone, or are you more the photo walk in a group type, you know, type of person? The potential answers are no, I'm all solo and prefer it that way, or I'm mostly solo, but do shoot with the occasional friend or family member. 50-50, member. I, uh, I shoot as much alone as with groups, photo walks, etc. And or the final answer, I almost never shoot alone. I'm all about group photo events. Now, what about you guys, Scott? I know that you are uh, you do photo walks from time to time, and I know you also like me participating in the the uh, Scott Kelby's Worldwide Photo Walk event coming up in July. Do you when you're just out shooting for the heck of it? Are you by yourself? Or are you with a bunch of other people? Just the opposite, actually. Um, if I'm working, I don't let anybody come. Hmm. Yeah, if I'm doing serious work, well, you know, Steve will give you a little ins idea. This, you know, he's on the workshop with me at Yellowstone recently, and mm -hmm. there's a bunch of us standing there. What do we all start doing invariably, Steve? Comparing lenses, you know, talking about <laughs> gear. Meantime, a grizzly bear runs across the field, you know, right. chasing uh, a wolf, and nobody <laughs> gets the shot because everybody's staring at each other's gear. So when I'm out doing serious work, I'm by myself. The photo walks and stuff that I do are just for fun. I enjoy doing them once in a while. I enjoy meeting people and going out and teaching a little bit on the photo walk. But I, I, if I'm going to shoot with a group, it's going to be for fun. If I'm shooting for pay, I'm always by myself. I, I think it's very tough to get focused when you're with a group of photographers on what you want to accomplish because, you know, you start to get sidetracked. Right. What about you, Ron? Are you uh, when you when you're out shooting? Are you typically by yourself? I know when you're traveling, of course, you're alone. But you know, if you're in your local area, do you bring a bunch of people with you, or you just you go it alone? No, I don't like people. <laughs> <laughs> Another twitterable <laughs> phrase. <laughs> 
Ron Brinkman, no, I, quote, I, I, I don't like people, end quote. <laughs> yeah, I, I generally uh, – I, well, I generally agree with Scott, though, that if, you know, if you're out there trying to focus on something, yeah, you don't want to do it. I mean, when I, you know, when I travel, I don't think it's necessarily true that I'm uh, – I, you know, I probably travel half the time by myself and half the time with somebody. It just depends on the situation and where I'm going and that kind of thing. And it's you – know, it certainly can be useful to travel with somebody and, and be some, you know, somebody else that is interested in photography. Uh, and or the thing I find is kind of nice is the buddy I probably traveled with most. He's sort of he's a much different type of photographer than I am. He tends to be the kind of guy that um, he just has a point and shoot, and he'll take just all kinds of random crap that I'm like, why are you taking that picture? Um, but when you know push comes to shove, and we come back at the the end of the trip or something, and I grab all of his photos too and go through it. It's sort of interesting because his his mode has been very much to sort of getting a sense of the place without trying to get great shots. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I remember that. And I would never have taken the photo myself, but I sort of am reminded of the um, the scene a little bit, much you know, much different fashion than the shots I took. So, you know, it, it's certainly there is value to be tra- you're shooting with people sometimes, uh, especially if they kind of complement your personal style. Yeah. Steve Simon, what about you? You're, as a photojournalist, that kind of sounds like, of course, you have to be alone and in in the environment that you're trying to capture. But when you're out, say you're not on assignment and you're out just shooting for the heck of it or street shooting, do you take people with you? No, it's really a lone pursuit. You need to be in the zone. You need to be concentrating to do your best work. You, you, it's hard enough to not be distracted just from everything else that's going on around you. I think if you're doing serious photography, you have to kind of you know, force yourself to, to be by yourself and, and go out and do it. So if I'm with someone, maybe we'll, we'll go to a place, we'll split up, I'll do my thing, they'll do theirs, and we'll meet up afterwards and, and compare notes. I think, you know, photography is a lot of things for a lot of people. And for some people, it is just a, a, a beautiful, not just, but it's a, a wonderful way to connect with people and to share a, uh, an interest. But I think at the end of the day, you need to be kind of on your own to do it properly. Did, did any of you guys see the, I think it was a Jim Carrey movie where uh, he was kind of in love with someone who led running photo walks. Basically, these people would be running and shooting at the same time. I like that. Running gun. That's cool. Pretty funny stuff. That's cool. All right. uh, We're going to take a quick minute here to uh, introduce our guest for this show. Uh, His name is Adrian Zimkowski. He's the president of a studio management software company called Tave. I'm here with Adrian Zimkowski. He's the president of a company called Tave. Uh, who puts out a pro- product called Tave Studio, which is some it's an application, an online application that allows photographers to manage all sorts of things. I'm not going to go into it exactly because I want him, the man, to tell us exactly what the uh, what the software does. Hey, Adrian, thanks for coming on this week in photography. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. So I wanted to jump in. So, you know, right off the bat, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago. You may have heard it with uh, another company that plays in your space. And I wanted to have you on to talk about how you and your company and your software is approaching and and how you're solving the problem that photographers have in terms of managing clients and contracts and all that good stuff. So, Tell us what, just from a top line, what Tave, the company, is and what Tave Studio is. Well, Tave Studio Manager, and we're actually just changing it to just plain old Tave here in a a week or two, Mm -hmm. um, is all about managing your business, getting all just your jobs, your shoots, all the events, your contracts, like you said, all in one place. But we also have a 
really exciting client side to it mm-hmm. where you know even on your website you can link in your contact form directly to us it comes right into your database we also have a system where they can do whole online booking so you can just talk to the person on the phone or email direct them over to your website and get them to electronically you know sign your contract choose what quote they're going to go with and send you money right there so it's great to have all that Okay, Adrian. So I'm a I'm a photographer, and uh, you know I've heard of your business, and I've heard that your the Tavi Studio Manager is going to help me do my back office stuff a lot easier than what I'm doing now with like say a pen and a, and some paper and licking stamps and that sort of thing. What can you give me just sort of the beginning to end breakdown of when I implement when I sign up for the service? What kind of things is it going to make easier for me? Well, it's going to be tracking all the information that you're about your business as far as like how your bookings are looking, how your leads, your conversion rates, mm-hmm. uh, you know, payments that have to go out, everything like that. Um, and it's just it, the sooner you get on board, the better, because then you can actually see how your business is evolving over time. So, you know, don't wait. Don't say, oh, I'm, I'm not big enough. I, I'm still doing it with paper and pencil. You know, get in there early because it's just so easy. You know, we, we tell people that, you know, when you use our system and you have the information there, um, you know, you can just pull up our search bar and you just like say, type in the last four digits of somebody's phone number as they're calling you. And right there, you have all of their information in front of you. So it's not necessarily, do you have enough information? It's, you know, are you taking advantage of it? Are you using it in a way that, you know, is going to make, you know, the most for your business? Yeah. So, so in how does the, how does the studio manager integrate with other things? Am I, for example, my, i I'm on a Mac and I have my contacts and address book and they're up on dot Mac or mobile me or whatever. And I also have, uh, you know, all kinds of things or like a calendar that's online and all that stuff. Do you pull that in or is there a way to integrate that with the service? We do have a lot of integrations and exports, and and we're always growing, you know, the list that we're doing. Uh, but some of the fun things there, you know, if you're a Mac user, you probably have an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Besides just the fact that we have an, a great iPhone version that we've had for a long time now, you know, you could uh, subscribe to your calendar feed and sync that to your phone so you have that on the go. Something that we're just about to release here is where you can export your address book, you know, your V cards. And I've even experienced just, just testing it where I get a phone call from somebody and it rings, and I know who it is immediately because I entered it in Tave, and I have all that on my phone now. Oh, that's great! That's great. That is that the the iPhone integration is that a uh, custom web view version of the site, or is that an actual app that you download? Right now, it's a web view. I mean, Jason and I we we both do web development or uh, and app Mac development, and we mm-hmm. actually started this as a Mac application, but it wasn't long before Karen said, you know, hey guys, I want to access this from everywhere, so give me a web version. And we figured, you know what, let's do that first. So eventually, I'm sure we're going to have an actual application version for your phone, your Mac, and everything like that. But right now, it is a web version. But it, it's very fast. And you know, it's, people are always telling us that they were on a shoot, they were at a wedding, they forgot something. They pulled up, pulled up our iPhone version, and they had it right there, and it was a lifesaver. Excellent. So talk but, a little bit about, about competition and, and in terms of the space overall. Um, it, it, for me personally, I had a, I had a conversation with the ShootQ guys uh, several weeks ago, and they were explaining their application. And I know this you know, the Tavi Studio Manager plays sort of in the same space there. Can you kind of compare and contrast, or not maybe compare, but just tell me what's different about Tave Studio Manager? And then I also want to talk about like the big giant gorillas like 
uh, you know, Salesforce.com and those sorts of software as a service applications? And are you shooting towards that? But but start off with just sort of the comparison. Well, just to say, you know, we're a small team. It's Jason and I. We're the main developers on this, so we're not going after those big things like Salesforce. Um, actually, to lead into this. Just to give you a little bit of an idea of how we started was Jason and I were actually doing travel booking engines for, you know, Carnival, AAA, all these big companies. And we did that for a while and we thought, you know what, let's let's do something else. Let's make our own business. And at that time, Karen was actually starting her photography business and I was trying to keep an eye of where is it going and everything like that. And we thought that's a great way to bring our, you know, the, our experience with booking engines into it. And so that that's really where it began. Okay. And since then... You know, we, we've developed all kinds of great things. Uh, you know, when we started in the space, there was only really the ShoeQ version 1 mm -hmm. and Studio Cloud. And Karen, when she was looking at them, she didn't, you know, she wasn't on board for either of those. She said, you guys can do it better. So let's, so do that for me. So, hey, why not? So she uh, was she was the first customer for, for the software and, and sort of the, the project product manager? Oh, yeah, definitely. And she's always the first line with, for, for us since we're, we're just the nerds behind it. So she answers the phones. She does the you know, email, the chat, and everything like that. And she's great with it, and she loves it. So and she's always telling us, you know, hey, I want this, or I need this, do this for me. Um, so that's great. We also have something just to differentiate us from the rest of the, the com competitors out there is something called IdeaBank, which is where our community, they actually tell us ideas. Hey, you know, what if – what if Tave did this? I'd like to do this. Other people vote on it, comment it. And, you know, to me, I think when you're looking at the individual features, it's something like that in the community that really sets us apart because, you know, I couldn't even tell you where we're going, you know, a year from now because, you know, it's the idea bank that's telling us where to go. It's our users telling us where to go. So, and I, nobody has anything like that. Yeah. Wow. So that's, it's sort of, I don't know. I don't even know if there's a term for it. Micro development where you take, you're you're eating the elephant one bite at a time instead of trying to swallow the whole thing and keeping it transparent. How in that how has that been going for you in terms of do you get an an over an overabundance of requests from clients or and how do you pick and choose what's going to bubble up to the top and get implemented? Well, and and that's exactly why we created Idea Bank because our our pattern has always been we want to you know do everything. When people say, "Hey, I have an idea," we have to say, "That's great, let's do it." And we were getting so many ideas, and people were seeing that we were actually listening, that we were just getting too many ideas to do. So we created the Idea Bank so it could be kind of this democracy, this you know the customers leading the way, and it, it's exciting. Nice. So then, who who is the software for? I mean, is it is it for the nature photographer who who maybe has a client out there that wants them to take pictures of Yosemite, or is it? Is it strictly for the wedding and portrait guys? Who, who? I know you designed it for Karen specifically, but uh, I would assume that you have a, a, a larger target. Who are you targeting? Well, I, I really do want it to be for everybody. Because it was started for Karen, you, you can definitely see the influence from the portrait and wedding side. But that, that's where things like the Idea Bank come in. You know, if, if you try it, and, you know, we have that free trial, and there's something that – you wanted to do that it's not quite doing it tell us you know we <laughs> we want to make this the best product out there so really we're we want to listen to everybody we want to know so if we're not doing it tell us you know and there we are so then you know in in terms of software online or in the geek community software as a service kind of thing why did you go with that metaphor using an online service instead of building a straight 
downloadable application that like Excel sort of feel? Well, and we did start with an actual application, but, you know, like I said, Karen wanted to access it online and our background has been in online services. So that just really clicked for us and we understand it. Why change it right now? We can look at it a little bit later, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's why we're going that way. Now, what about what about future directions for the application? I, I, you know, you, I know you mentioned that you're taking it one step at a time and implementing features and releasing them. But from a quarterly or six months out from now, what kind of major changes can can the community expect to see in the software? Well, the first one, and this is you know, it's small but it's significant to us, is we're just changing the name to just straight out Tave instead of Tave Studio Manager, mm-hmm. um, and and part of that is because we do feel that there can be a broader market for this. I mean, we have one of our users uh, that contributes a lot of ideas is actually a musician that plays plays for you know presidential events and things like that. So, and we just love having you know her around and hearing that kind of feedback from other people. So, um, but we're working on also. A lot of integration with other systems because, you know, you were asking before about, you know, I'm putting together a website, et cetera. How do I uh, bring you into the fold? We want you to have lots of different ways to do that, whether you just want to send us an email with information or you have somebody like Redcart who's going in and actually creating a way to send the order to us. You know, we love that. So that's something, you know, that's that's coming up real soon. And then after that, it's idea bank and we also have a, a thread kind of on the side there where we're playing with a substantial new look and feel mm-hmm. uh, to the application and that's that's exciting but you know first and foremost it's what the users want us to do so we're, we're listening to that and then on the other hand kind of playing with this 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 next generation of the software very cool so where where does the name Tave come from oh you know I've, I've had it from a long time and I I just actually picked it randomly out of a conversation with a foreign exchange student from an email I had with her. Um, so I just liked the word, and I've been using it ever since. I was first using it for uh, creating some software for the B operating system back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I was actually at that point trying to make a Photoshop-like clone for that application, and, and that was exciting. And I've just been trying to use it ever since. Wow. And what, what does it mean? It, um, it, actually, it comes from the phrase, I love you. Uh, but other than that, unfortunately, it's not the word love. <laughs> it's more, it's more like to you. So, but you know well, that works too because with the the whole you know community driven focus, it is it, it's kind of like to you. This this application is about you, the user. So very cool. It still works. So talk to the, for the folks that that may want to try out the app. What what's pricing like? How much does it cost? Is it is it a one time flat fee monthly? How does it go? It's twenty four ninety five a month, and we do have a ten percent discount if you want to prepay for a year. And we're actually just—we had no way to do coupons before, but you know, you guys asked about it, so uh, we're, we threw that in there. And you can actually use uh, the coupon code TWIP and get a special deal where you can prepay for a year at twenty percent off. So that's like what two months, oh, more than two months off. Excellent, very cool. Yep. Look at that—a coupon code specifically for the TWIP listeners. That's cool. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, okay, cool. That's awesome. So definitely check it out. So head on over to was it just Tave now or TaveStudioStill.com? It, it all gets there. So go to TaveStudio.com or just Google it, and you'll get us. Very cool, Adrian. Thanks a lot for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been really informative, and it's a really cool service. All right, thank you. Uh, before I let you go, though, uh, where can folks find you? 
online or find the company online? I know you're on Twitter and other places. You want to just point some folks to where they can get more info? Well, the best place is just our website um, at the at the bottom of it. And also, when you have the application, we have links to you know our Twitter, our, our Facebook account. Um, but you know, we like to keep things inside the application. That's where we have you know our forum, our help desk, our idea bank. So, mm -hmm. very cool. All right, Adrian. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And that was Adrian Zinkowski. He's the president of the studio management software company Tave. If you want to to check out any of the stuff that he's working on, head over to twiplog.com and click on any of the links in the show notes. And we've got time for about uh, one or two listener questions here. Uh, there's one in here for Scott Bourne, since he's the our special guest star. I want to throw it over to him. Our uh, listener by the name of Troy Hutchinson has a question. He says, I've just purchased a Canon 40D for wedding photography. And I would like to know which flash to buy, which remote to use to remotely fire it when using it for fill light. Wow. Well, it depends on your budget. Um, the, the 580EX2 is Canon's flagship flash. It is very, very, very good, very reliable, very powerful, very easy to use considering what you know old flashes like to be. Uh, you know, And then Canon's – I cannot remember the name – of or the number of Canon's remote transmitter, but um, that that would work fine. Although you might find yourself better off using something like a Pocket Wizard transceiver, which will have more range and work in a variety of different situations. That said, if you can't afford any of those solutions, you know any flash that allows you manual control and that has a PC cord connection will be fine. You can make any flash work. It's just a lot easier to use the ETTL system on a Canon flash so that you can get fill flash when you want it if that's and I understand that's what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. All right, next question up is for is from listener Jason Larson. I'm going to throw this one over to Ron. He says, "I'm a long-time still shooter and a brand new video shooter with a Canon 5D Mark II. Other than controlling exposure, how does shutter speed come into play while shooting video?" Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting question. Um, you know, he's he's sort of curious, uh, you know, when you're shooting still frames, obviously you use shutter speed to control kind of the amount of motion blur you get. And the same thing is true for video. And actually, it's a pretty important thing to be setting. It's, it's maybe a little bit more subtle in that you can't stare at a, a single frame and understand what the motion blur is doing to it. But there's really a, a very different feel you get out of doing a, a really short, fast shutter, you know, one, one two thousandths of a second versus a fairly long shutter in video. Now, in video, of course, you're shooting at 30 frames a second. So obviously, you can't get a shutter speed that's more than that. But you do. I mean, I personally, you know, much prefer having as as much motion blur in that video as possible because it it removes kind of that strobe effect you can see on video. And in fact, if you look at a lot of video footage uh, relative to film, there's this look that video has, and there's a variety of things that contribute to it. But one of them is sort of the the fact that most video cameras tend to shoot at a much faster shutter speed, and so everything feels a little bit strobier. Um, and and if you can turn up the you know, change the shutter speed so everything's a little bit more motion blurred. It gives a nicer, smoother kind of motion to it. So it's definitely something that's worth playing with. Okay. And let's uh, let's throw one more question in here. This one is for all of us, I guess. It's from a listener by the name of Juiced Muhlenbroek. 
Hope I got that right. I'm sorry, Juiced, if I butchered your name. But he says, I've been a regular listener to Twip from very early. Thanks for your great podcast. Uh, He says a local fashion house will be doing a couple of photo shoots of their fashion, and they hired a local photographer to do this, and they've asked him to do a shoot of the shoots. Do we have any suggestions? Now, how would you guys suggest shooting a shoot? I think, you know, I, I, would, I would point uh, to that interview I did with Mike Seymour a couple of weeks back where he talks about shooting on a film set because I think some of us the same sort of thing. There's, you know, there's sort of an etiquette to not getting in the way uh, to trying to capture the moment but understanding that, you know, what your place is in all of that, you know, not being too obtrusive. So that's certainly one resource I would suggest is just understanding what, you know, what it means to be sort of a secondary photographer uh, on, on a set that's trying to capture what's going on without being the primary focus of the job that's being done. That, that being said, you don't want to assume necessarily that, uh, you know, you can't do certain things. So I would suggest to him that before the shoot starts to meet with everybody involved, you know, understand what the expectations are for him. If he has to keep a really low profile, then then he knows that uh, and, and he can just sort of work around whatever's going on. But if he has some ideas, uh, a vision of what he wants to do, he can maybe mention it to the people and uh, and maybe he can, you know, do a little more than just being a fly on the wall uh, if if that's possible now when you were when you were doing the yoko ono shoot steve uh, were there other photographers there documenting you shooting or did you have her all yourself for the for the few the few minutes that you had i always work with a team of paparazzi documenting <laughs> whenever i'm shooting <laughs> but uh oh it was it was just me and it's rare that 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 happens although when i did the um Carson Cressley thing with Nikon. We had a video crew sort of following us, and it's it it can be a little bit. Um, uh, it could put you off a little bit. So you want to be. I would su- suggest to Juice that uh, you know he 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 does generally keep a, a low profile and not get in the way of things. And I saw yeah. I saw that Carson uh, site that's up there for it's kind of for amateur shooters and with tips and tricks. How was that shooting that when you what were you doing? Were you just documenting the fact that Nikon is doing that? thing or were you shooting portraits of Carson for the blog uh, it was it was a lot of different things but basically I had an assignment to shoot Carson for the lead page of that website so I had to do that but uh, we were also sort of creating this webisodes where Carson was giving some tips and I was giving some tips so it was kind of there were two things going on at the same time so it was a little bit a uh, little bit discombobulating and if you've seen Carson Cress you know that he can be pretty discombobulating a personality he's a, he's a great guy very funny but uh, it, it, it's not always easy. But, um, you know, as we said earlier, you know, do you go out, you want to sort of be focused. And I'm much more comfortable being the lone wolf in any situation. And there are photographers that do commercial and advertising. Um, Scott, when you used to do weddings, I mean, it's, it's big production, a lot of people involved. Uh, I much prefer to be on my own. Cool. All right, let's move on to the picks of the week really quickly. Uh, Scott Bourne, do you have a pick to throw out there? I do. I do. I have become uh, very enamored of this little accessory called the ray flash. Mm. It is a way to get yourself a ring light using your existing Canon or Nikon flash head. Basically, it's an adapter that fits over the flash. You point the flash towards the subject as you normally would on camera. And this adapter channels all that light down into a series of plastic tubes that circle the lens, and it creates the exact same effect as a ring light to a point. It's not quite as 
noticeable or strong, but you get a perfect circle catch light. And, you know, you, we see this look all the time. Maxim made it very popular on their magazine where you get this sort of faint sort of halo look around the model. If you use it with another light as a fill, it can be stunning. And what's great about it is if you are running and gunning and you don't really want to take a lot of time, throw a 100 millimeter lens on your camera, put this thing over it, and you can just set it on ETTL and guarantee, guarantee that you're going to get a good shot. Wow. And what does that run? It's $200. And just look it up under Ray Flash. We did a review of it at photofocus.com. And uh, it, it is, it's really cool. It used to cost $300. And then some people balked at it because it did actually, keep in mind, there's no actual strobe in it. It's not a flash unit itself. You have to already have a flash. This is just an adapter that goes over it. Now, there's another one out there that I have not tried yet, which is coming to me for review, that does something similar, although it takes a different tack. But, you know, ring lighting is becoming all the rage, which is funny because it brings back the old quote, everything that's old is new again. In the 1930s, this was a very standard way to light a portrait. Yeah, but that was ring flash powder, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got one shot, right? <laughs> yeah, check it out. It's, it's Google. It's called the Ray Flash. Um, you have to order the specific size for your camera body and flash head because the, the, it has to have the right reach to go around the lens. But it's, uh, it's, it's really nice. I mean, I, I've used it, i probably say, on 50% of the shoots that I've done where I needed a flash recently when people were involved. And every single time, it was just like I'd, I'd take the first shot as a test shot, and I'd go, wow, that's already perfect. That's cool. All right. Another thing to add to my wish list. Ron, <laughs> Ron Brinkman, what's your pick of the week? Yeah, just a quick little pick. I, I picked up a book the other day that is called Around the World, the Grand Tour in Photo Albums. And it's kind of fun. It's, uh, you know, turn of the century. Well, I guess early uh, 20th century. Uh, we've turned another century since then. Uh, was was a time when photography was sort of just becoming available to the masses. You could get your little brownie camera. And it was also the time when um, people were really starting to be able to travel a lot more. You know, not just the elite were able to travel uh, and so what this book does is it kind of collects effectively travel snapshots from around that time period, uh, you know, starting around 1900 through about 1920, uh, people traveling around the world and, you know, what they found interesting. And it's just, uh, it's a nicely put together book. It's got a few other little bits of memorabilia from the time, you know, uh, receipts from the cruise ship people were on and brochures from the visiting the great pyramids and all that sort of thing but it's a just a neat little look at how photography was you know changing and becoming more of a, a tool for the masses to document their uh, document their journeys like i said it's around the world the grand tour photo albums the author is barbara levine and kirsten jensen uh and it's on amazon my only slight complaint with it is that it's all printed on uh, a matte finished paper and so all of the uh, all these old black and white photos aren't quite as high contrast as I think they could be mm -hmm. uh, relative to probably what the original negatives had but having said that it's, it's a fun book to just have you know sitting on the coffee table excellent alright Steve Simon I know you have a pretty interesting tip or pick of the week what is it yeah cause, and I understand that you made this a couple of weeks ago <laughs> I should really listen when you talk <laughs> Really? You, you should. I actually, you know, every now and then I have something to say. <laughs> I tell you, first there was fire, then there was the wheel. Now there's the camera slinger double camera strap. And the reason I lump it in with those two things is, you know, I, I saw this thing and I thought, 
ah, maybe it looks a little geeky. Is it going to work? And I, I emailed the company. I told them I'm doing this Nikon mentor workshop. I wanted to try it out. And, you know, one of the good things about doing this show is that sometimes they will let you try stuff out. So it came. I tried it out. And I tell you, for anyone that uses two cameras on a regular basis, it is a game changer. I put it on. I had a D3X with a 24 to 70 on one side, uh, D90 with a 70 to 200 in the other. Um, it, it felt like nothing. It kept the cameras uh, really comfortable. I was able to pick one up, put it down, pick up the other one. Um, it really works. And um, people said I didn't look more geeky than I normally looked, you know, wearing it. <laughs> And, That's not uh, much of a it, metric there, Steve. I know, I know, I realize that. But I got to say, uh, I, I was impressed, very impressed. And believe me, the people in the workshop uh, knew it. So eventually, um, I had to just stop talking about it. But but it, it really did work well. And, and when you're carrying two cameras over the course of several hours, um, nothing better. It, it, it felt really uh, light and, and uh, it was it's, it's a great idea and, and really nicely designed. They're not cheap. I think they're about $140 if I'm not mistaken. But uh, again, if you're a professional or if you're using your two camera system um, when you're out in the field, uh, it's fantastic. And what's the, what's the cost? Um, I believe it is $140. Um, I'm just looking on the site. I don't see it obvious to me but scott Bourne, does that fit into your budget i know you have more than one camera body would you uh can you afford 140 bucks i think it you know i th i think it's definitely spendy for a camera strap but you know some camera straps are getting to be just like camera bags ridiculous yeah. so i guess that's just the new normal but uh, it's but very interesting to me because i often wear at least two if not three bodies when i'm out on an assignment yeah. You know, normally when I have two camera bodies, I've got one on one shoulder, one on the other. It's never, I, it's never a good scene. You know, my collar is always kind of going from one side to the other. It's ne I don't look as good as I would like to look. I look a little disheveled. Uh, this puts everything, keeps it all in order. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's a lot of money. But uh, honestly, there's nothing else like it. And in terms of the actual shooting, um, you drop one camera down, grab the other one. It's there. Boom. You're ready. Uh, I think for for any kind of professional using two cameras, uh, uh, once they try it, they're 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 not going to go back. And Steve, what's your configuration? I mean, do you, are you using two D threes attached to yourself with? And what lenses do you have on those two bodies? Well, I did mention in this particular situation, I had a twenty four to seventy and a seventy to two hundred. So, okay, um, you know, two very different, and that gives you a, a heck of a range, you know, for carrying around. And but the beauty is. Um, it just you don't feel it. It's it's not like you normally you know you're always fussing with your shoulder and 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 readjusting the strap on your shoulder and sometimes it it uh, you know it sneaks down. But with this, it it stays consistent and uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty impressive. And if you throw 16 gigabyte cards in each one of those bodies, you're good to go all day, right? Absolutely. Do you do you shoot with cards that big or do you use with the smaller ones? I use eight gig cards, but I've I've come to the point now that you know probably you know if my dream eventually is realized of a D3X with their big uh, megapixels, I probably will go to sixteen gig cards because I I, I have it. I think most of us have had such great experience with these cards. They're usually the the last thing in our systems that we're going to have trouble with, generally speaking. Yep. Digital. And then for my pick of the week, uh, I'm going to pick a, a uh, someone that Scott mentioned earlier on in this show, Chase Jarvis. He has a blog, a very interesting and active blog. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, but it's at blog.chasejarvis.com slash blog. 
And uh, Chase, I've been following Chase a lot. I've been trying to convince him to come on the show. Hopefully we'll get him in the next week or so. But uh, he uh, he's sort of inspired me to start taking more pictures and playing with them on my iPhone. Because like Scott was saying, he's sort of the, the poster kid for making cool shots with the camera that you have with you, and which in many cases is going to be that iPhone. So definitely check out his blog. We'll link to it on twiplog.com. And uh, post comments on his blog posts um, and make sure you communicate with him. Uh, coming up next week on This Week in Photography, we're going to hopefully be back at the Twit Cottage and doing a live video show again. So you can uh, see us all unshaven and in our, our normal habitats. And before we leave the show, I wanted to throw it to our special guest star, Scott Bourne, to give us his tip of the week. Scott, what is it? My tip of the week is that you really, if you really want to improve your photography, go on a workshop. Oh. That's my tip. Um, you know, workshops, I've had the good fortune of leading lots of them. Um, Steve and I, like I said, we're at Yellowstone with you, Fred. And, yep. and, and uh, you know, I think you got as much out of the experience as, as did I and as did Steve as the students do. Uh, but, you know, every time you're at a workshop, you, you get to see things you're not familiar with. You get to hear ideas you're not familiar with. And we, if you don't do things like workshops, you tend to develop patterns, and the patterns may not be good. If you get somebody else's opinion, then some, you know, if you, or you just see something. It doesn't even have to be something that deals with opinion. You just see a, a technique or a method or a gear. I, I was using my long lens and had my arm draped over it. And one of the participants in the workshop came up and said, well, I, I first saw you doing that. I thought maybe you were just relaxing your arm. But he said, I noticed that you put your arm over the, your long lens every time you use it. And I said, yeah, that's to help improve sharpness, reduce vibration. That simple little tidbit helped that guy's pictures because he was one of those people that came in and said, my pictures aren't sharp. That was all it took. So going on a workshop can really expand your vision. You, do, you know, there are some very fancy and expensive ones. There's some very inexpensive and even free ones at community colleges, local libraries, camera clubs, even camera stores sometimes will have them. I, I recommend if you really want to improve your photography, go on a workshop. Now, this may sound like it's different advice than I gave before where I said go by yourself, but that's if you're on assignment. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you want to learn and go on an educational um, you know, experience, I, I think workshops are really a good way to do it. Yeah, and what what are generally the range cost wise of these workshops? Well, you know, I'm leading one at Bolsky del Apache in November that with Artie Morris, we're going to do birds down there a week and around Thanksgiving is thirty two hundred bucks. But I'm also leading one uh, the Maui Photo Workshops, which is with a code you can get over at Photo Focus. I think it's like three hundred and fifty bucks. And mm. yeah, I know it sucks. I got hired to lead a photo workshop in Maui, but. Um, you know, somebody's got to do it anyway. <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, there there's a wide variety of them. Or you could win a free workshop if you enter your photos in the f64.com Aperture Nature Photography Workshop. See, I got all my plugs in real quick. Um, it's it, it. I've seen them literally from eighty nine bucks, ninety nine bucks for stuff. For instance, that. Um, that you might get from Nikonians. I guess maybe they're up around one twenty nine. Um, there, there are a number of them that are affordable, but the the big workshops, Fred, like you might take over it at uh, Maine Photographic Workshops or Arizona Highways Photo Workshops or perhaps Rocky Mountain School of Photography, they're going to run in the five hundred to twenty five hundred dollar range. It just depends on whether or not they include lodging, transportation, etc. Yeah. Uh, but 
trying to do at least one workshop a year will really help. And if you want to do a specific kind of photography, let's say you're interested in wedding photography, well, by all means, try to take a workshop with a guy named Clay Blackmore. Whatever he charges, it'll be worth it. You'll make it back in your first wedding. If you're interested in you know, bird photography, come on out with Artie Morris or me or somebody that specializes in that. And the, the one thing I really think that people get out of it is they get portfolio-quality pictures for sure out of every workshop where they might not get them if they're just starting out without. I mean, some of the photos that came in as the result of the workshop that the three of us were teaching at Yellowstone – uh, they're they're amazing. They're amazing work. Um, I, I think that it really inspired people to be around a bunch of other photographers and to do what we did, which was, you know, eat, sleep, and drink photography. Yeah, and and the other thing I would add on to that is doing photography workshops prize you out of your everyday environment and places you in a brand new environment so your brain sees things a little bit differently and you're like Scott just said you're with people that are focused on photography so it's it's the primary not a secondary focus uh, for that short period of time yeah it gets gets you off the couch because you know it's real easy to sit in the air conditioning and watch the big screen tv and go yeah I don't know if I'll go out and shoot today but when you're on a workshop and you've paid money well, then you're like, okay, i got to get up at O-Dark 30 to do this sunrise. Now, the only problem is if you go on a workshop with Steve Simon and you're out there at the sunrise shoot, just expect a little bit of droopy eyes. But you know. <laughs> Steve, hey, Simon, Steve hey. Simon's a rock star. That's why. <laughs> All right, he, looks, and- he looks an awful lot like the lead guitars for the Rolling Stones the last time I saw yes, that. Yes, I've, I've had a tough life. I've had a tough life. And with that, let's just close the show off. Scott, where can people find you and, and follow you around? Photofocus.com, blog every day about photography, or just follow me on Twitter at Scott Bourne, B-O-U-R-N-E, just like the Bourne identity, except I don't get my royalty checks. There you go. And Ron Brinkman, where can people find you? Uh, best place is probably just on Twitter, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. All right. Steve Simon, what about you? Uh, Steve Simon slash, or sorry, Twitter.com slash Steve Simon. And uh, I'm going to be doing a workshop at the main workshops in August, August 23rd. It's a project workshop. So check that out. Excellent. So we'll, we'll try to throw the link to that workshop in the show notes as well. And if you're looking for me, uh, you can find me also on Twitter, Twitter.com slash Frederick Van. And with that, it's time to take your lens caps off. 